turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 4. Now, let me just tell you that it's been a little bit of a morning for me. I may or may not have printed my notes on the backs of any paper I could find around the house because apparently our printer is out of paper and our paper supply is gone. So if you hear me break into some talk about 529 plans, um, Worthington City school bill, mortgage, then you'll know why. But I grabbed stuff. Some of these even have folds in them because they came in the mail to us. So I just grabbed whatever I could that was only printed on one side, threw it in the printer and printed out the other side. So that's what I have this morning. That's what you might get. Um, if you recall, last week we saw how Peter and John were on their way to the temple to pray. And they see the lame man who had been lame from birth. And he's there at the gate, the beautiful gate, Luke tells us. And the Holy Spirit prompted Peter and John to go over and to heal this guy. And after that, it became a firestorm, if you will. God used that miracle in an extremely public place in front of the religious leaders and the officials to demonstrate the validity of the gospel. And what came as a result was we saw at the end of our chapter last week and the beginning of chapter 4 where many had seen and witnessed what took place and they believed. But we also see something else that happened as a result that not everybody believed. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at what happened to Peter and John immediately after this miracle occurred. They healed this guy, and they were going around proclaiming that this healing occurred in the name of Jesus. And the authorities witnessed all the same circumstances, all the same events. They saw this lame man clinging to Peter and John as they went about the temple. They saw the crowds wondering in amazement and believing in this testimony of Peter and John, and they said to themselves, we need to do something about this. We thought we squelched this Jesus Christ message when we put him up on the cross several weeks ago. And apparently, we haven't squelched this like we thought. And so this morning, we're going to look at chapter 4, uh, all the way up to verse 31. So we have a, a lot to cover but there's some neat things in here that I want you to kind of take a look at. And before we get into the nitty-gritty of it, I want to say that there are lots of different themes that are running through this. One theme that we're going to see repeated is the name of Jesus. And Michael shared with us last week how important the name of Jesus is for salvation. The Bible says that there is no other name upon which men must be saved. So we're going to see this underlying theme of the name of Jesus and how the Holy Spirit is using that. We're also going to see this theme of speech. And you say, what do you mean by that? Well, just take a look for just a second. Look at verse 2, if you would. I'm just going to highlight these couple of uh, verses as we go through this for a second. It says, they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection. Okay? Verse 2. Um, verse 7, we see in what name. That's our second theme. 
Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, addressing the rulers, look at verse 10, the name of Jesus Christ. Verse 12, the name under heaven. Verse 13, confidence of Peter and John. Verse 14, the religious leaders had nothing to say in reply. Verse 16 at the end, religious leaders, we cannot deny it or speak against it. Verse 17, the religious leaders commanded Peter and John to speak no more in this name. Verse 18, they commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Verse 20, Peter and John say, we cannot stop speaking. Verse 29, they pray to have confidence that we may speak with confidence. Verse 30, in the name of of your holy servant Jesus. And then in verse 31 at the end, they began to speak the word of God with boldness. So we see a fabric here that is heavily focused on speech by these couple of parties. Speech by James, or by Peter and John who are filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered by the Holy Spirit for the gospel and for God's message. And the religious leaders who are completely against this message and trying to squelch it and stop this speech. So I've broken our sections down into three this morning. We're going to see kind of like a courtroom setting, if you will. We're going to see the first section is the charge. The charge against Peter and John for speaking and teaching confidently about Jesus. The second section we're going to see is going to be the verdict, if you will. What has been concluded or determined as a result of seeing the evidence all right, And then the third section is going to be the release. When they release them from their court hearing, what are we going to see happens happen? So let's look at verses um, look at verses one through five for a second. It says, "And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came upon them. And being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And it came about on the next day that the rulers and elders and scribes were gathered in Jerusalem... And Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. So what we see right out of the gate, as a result of Peter and John preaching about Jesus, is a rejection by the religious leaders. And we see that they were rejecting this message for two reasons. One was, they were preaching resurrection of the dead, in the name of Jesus. And the second was that they were just teaching the people in general. We know that the religious leaders were the shepherds of Israel. God had intended for them to be the keepers of God's law. They were to be good shepherds, but they failed. They weren't good shepherds. And Jesus condemned them for being false teachers and looking out for their own identities. And here, they're taking issue with these lay guys, these lay people, preaching and teaching. And they're also taking issue with the fact that they're preaching Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, whom they do not believe in. The Sadducees specifically did not believe in 
bodily resurrection. I think sometimes you identify the difference between Sadducees and Pharisees. Don't you always say, the Sadducees are sad, you see? (laughs) The Pharisees believed in the entire oral and written law. But the Sadducees only believed in the Torah, the first five books. And they didn't believe in bodily resurrection, so they were sad, you see? They only had part of truth and revelation. And what is interesting here is that Luke tells us in verse 6 that these guys, these religious leaders, these Sadducees, were all of high priestly descent. You know, another translation might say that they were all family, and that's true, they were. Uh, What we see here is that Annas was the former high priest, and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, is now currently the high priest. And you might remember those names from Jesus' illegal midnight trials through the night where they sought to find him guilty when they already had a verdict and were looking for evidence. And what we know about Annas is that five of his sons over time eventually became high priest plus one son-in-law and one grandson had become high priest. This, friends, is a dynasty, if you will. This is an entire regime that is intended on protecting itself and preserving itself. Have you ever seen stuff in our world today? You know that maybe you have a family that is extremely powerful with generation after generation after generation holding positions of power and the goal is to seek and preserve that dynasty. We see that all kinds of times. And we see that here, where if they lose control of the crowds, if they lose control of the people, their own livelihood as the keepers and the leaders of the people is in jeopardy. And so they're going to do anything they can to preserve that. They're all of high priestly descent. They're all family members. And look at what they ask when they bring these guys into court the next day. Verse 7, it says, And when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? This is a two-fold question. In other words, they're asking, By what supernatural power have you done this? How has this happened? How have you been able to perform this miracle? And in a sense, it's a challenge to them. And the second is very similar. By what authority? You know, imagine them sitting there in their their thrones, in their high priestly chairs, in their judges' seats, with their robes and their garments and all of their priestly attire that has been prescribed throughout God's Old Testament for the Levitical tribe to wear and to celebrate. And these guys are sitting there in their positions of authority, and they're saying, first of all, how did you do this supernatural miracle? And it's a challenge of sorts. We don't believe that this was the work of God. We believe this is probably some other force. And the second is very similar. What right do you guys have to preach, teach the people? You don't have the credentials that we have. You're not wearing the robes. You don't hold the offices that we have. And we'll find out later, they were concerned because they were uneducated men. Just average lay people that should not have had the ability or right or authority to teach the people. It carries both a spiritual connotation of authority and just a very practical connotation of authority. What skill set do they have? 
Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 12. We've seen hints of this before. Keep your finger there in Acts and turn to Matthew chapter 12. We'll look at verse 22, chapter 12, verse 22 to 27. It says, Then there was brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb, and he healed him. In other words, Jesus healed this guy so that the dumb man uh, spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and began to say, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? So the crowds witnessed this, and they saw Jesus heal, and they're saying, Is this the son of David? How is this possible? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, or Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? And then in verse 27, Jesus challenges the religious leaders and the Pharisees, And if I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Consequently, they shall be your judges. So what we see here is a very similar accusation that the religious leaders made towards Jesus when they saw him heal and perform a miracle. By what power are you doing this? They wanted to credit Satan. Jesus says, you answer me how you do it, and I'll answer you how I do it. Then turn to Matthew chapter 21. Twenty-one verses twenty-three to twenty-seven. And when he had come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, "By what authority are you doing these things?" So now we have the question of authority towards Jesus. Who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered and said to them, "I will ask you one thing too, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things." The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for they will all hold hold John to be a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. And he also said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So we see in those two passages, those two references there, that they came at Jesus with the exact same motive. By what power did you do these things? And under what authority, or by whose authority, and who granted this to you to do these things? Same questions that they're asking of Peter and John in their courtroom. And I love Peter's response in verse 8. Peter, filled... With the Holy Spirit. Remember what we said about this term, filling of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit came upon Peter uh, differently than just his baptism as a believer, but with an express purpose for an express assignment. And right here, it is to give him the words and the speech in front of these kings and rulers. And he says, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, 
whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. One of the commentaries that we have is by F.F. Bruce, and he says, at this point, this is where the defendants have now gone on the offense. This is where the courtroom, the, the environment and the attitude in the courtroom now shifts and does a 180, right? The defendants have gone on the offense by means of the Holy Spirit and his wise counsel. And Peter, in a way, is challenging them and saying, are you really charging us with healing a lame man? Are you more concerned about the law and the protocol than this miraculous healing? Remember how they came at Jesus when he healed on the Sabbath? They even witnessed and saw the miracle that Jesus did, and they were more concerned that he had done it on the Sabbath. And what I love here is that in verses 10 through 12, Peter reveals three things for all of us and for these religious leaders about this miracle. The first, he says in verses 10 and 11, this healing happened by the name of Jesus, and he says, the one you crucified... God raised. He is the cornerstone you rejected. Peter is quoting Psalm 118 where the Messiah is metaphorically referred to as the cornerstone that the builders rejected. Now, this gets into my my expertise a little bit, if I may say. See, when you're building and you're building in masonry construction... It was commonplace to find the perfect stone. I mean, you had these masons out in the field finding the raw stones, and you obviously are looking for a cube as much as possible, and then they're honing this, and they're chipping away at it, and they're chiseling to create these perfect cubes, all right? And they would find the, the stone that was the most true. In other words, it was perfect in this direction, it's perfect in that direction, It's perfect in this direction. And that is the one that you set on the corner. That is the one that you establish first because that sets the direction and the tone of the entire foundation, the entire building. You know, if you're off just a little bit this direction, by the time you get over there to Cassie, it's exaggerated. It's amplified. What? (laughs) By the time you, you go this direction, if you're off just a little bit here, it gets amplified and it gets exaggerated. Now imagine going up. If you're off on this direction, this plane, this face, when you get up, your building might be out here or in here. And so builders would traditionally look for this perfect cornerstone to start their buildings. And the psalmist says that the builders rejected God's cornerstone. Jesus Christ is God's cornerstone for us. And the religious leader said, nope, not interested. And Peter cites and applies this reference here today. He also tells us in verse 10, this man, this lame man that you're concerned about, he stands here before you in good health. He has been healed perfectly. His condition has been restored. It's been reversed in the name of Jesus That's the second thing that Peter tells us happened. The third, 
that, G, that Peter tells us about this miracle is that the name of Jesus brings salvation. He's speaking spiritually. Look at verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So Peter tells us these three things about this miracle. It happened in the name of Jesus. This man has been physically restored. And this name of Jesus also brings salvation to this man. And he brings salvation to every man and woman and child who will call upon the name of Jesus. And so our first sort of takeaway from this section might be that when we speak the truth, we're likely to get in trouble for it. When we speak the truth, we are likely to get in trouble for it. Now, I hope that probably resonates and rings true for us here this morning in our contemporary circumstances in this world for obvious reasons, things that we're facing as a nation, things that other nations are facing. Michael opened up in his prayer this morning that thanks be to God that we're able to do what we're doing here right now. There are many in other nations who can't do this like we do. We've referenced Chinese believers before who are being persecuted when their faith is made public and other nations around the world. But this is not a new thing. This happened to Peter and John immediately after healing this man. And they were preaching and teaching about God's work in healing this guy. And their speech Their presentation of the gospel got them in trouble. And there will come times where it gets us in trouble as well. That's okay. God's got our back. Our next section, verse 13. This is sort of the the verdict, if you will. The verdict is going to be that they are to cease speaking confidently about Jesus in verses 13 to 22. Look at just 13 and 14 with me for a second. Now, as they observe the confidence of Peter and John, in other words, they are visibly watching this emboldened confidence that Peter and John have as they've been placed in the center of this courtroom and they've been challenged about what they were doing, what they were preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus and the resurrection. These guys are looking at this boldness and this confidence as these guys have. And understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were marveling and began recognizing them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. Isn't that beautiful? They had nothing to say in reply. Turn with me to Luke chapter 21 for a second. Luke chapter 21, verse 12. I referenced this not by citing it, but just uh, verbally a couple weeks ago. Chapter 21, verse 12. Jesus told his disciples, But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you. Isn't that what Luke told us early on in chapter 4 of Acts? That they laid their hands on these guys and arrested them and detained them? And will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. Okay, Jesus said this would happen. It would happen as a result of his name. 
Verse 13, it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. How many of us, when we get, quote unquote, in trouble for speaking truth, look at it as an opportunity? I'm going to tell you, I start holding a pity party pretty quickly for myself. You know, when, when somebody of authority starts to, starts to put their heavy thumb on me and crack down and starts to want to restrict, you know, I kind of start to hunker down a little bit, maybe cower, and I go, oh, look at me. I'm being persecuted for my faith. I'm speaking truth, and now I can't. Jesus told his disciples, when this happens to you, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for your testimony. Now, here's the kicker. Verse 14. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. For I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. Now turn back to Acts. Isn't that exactly what we're seeing happen here? Jesus said, I'm going to give you the words to say. I'm going to give you a testimony and I'm going to give you a case, if you will, a defense that your naysayers, your contrarians, your opposition cannot refute. And we see here in verse 14, they had nothing to say in reply. They've got nothing to say because they, one, witnessed the miracle and they see the guy standing there healed. But also, even in witnessing the uneducated men speaking truth and proclaiming, they have got nothing to say in reply. It was irrefutable. And so then in verses 15 through 18, what we're going to see here is that they, they willfully acknowledge the facts, but they ultimately end up rejecting the truth. Isn't that a lot of what we see today in, in our media? I mean, how often are we watching the same set of circumstances and one side draws this conclusion and the other side draws this conclusion over here? We're going to see that happen, sort of, if you will, in these verses. Verses 15 through 16 to begin with. But when they had ordered them, when the leaders had ordered them to go outside of the council, they began to confer with one another. We're going to go back to our private chambers. We're going to have our private discussion. It's kind of like when, when uh, we're, we're into MasterChef these days. I don't know if it's a current season or not, but we've been watching some of the older seasons of MasterChef. You know, and they, they bring these dishes up forward and they, they, they partake of them and then they send the chefs back to their stations and then they come over here and they have this little huddle, right? And they begin to discuss what they experienced and how they want to, what their verdict is. We see the same thing happening with these guys. They send Peter and John out and they confer with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. A noteworthy miracle has taken place and everyone has seen it. It's taken place through them. The leaders acknowledge that this happened at the hands of Peter and John. They acknowledge that everyone has seen it, and it includes probably them, some of them. And they also say, we can't deny it ourselves. <laughs> and so verse 17, but in order 
that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to any man in this name. Again, speak no more in the name of Jesus. Their primary concern is the spreading of the gospel. In verse 18, when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Again, we see that in the name of Jesus. We see that sort of suppression or rejection of speech. Isn't that what we're seeing today? And I know it's not as bad domestically here as it is overseas in many cases, but we have legislation that's currently being kicked around to suppress and reject the presentation of the gospel. And we can expand that out to not just the gospel, but really a lot of truth in general. How many times have you heard us up here, and we've all dialogued about it in our fellowship, where, you know, wrong things are being called right, and science is being twisted, and there is a manipulation of facts, there is a, is a presentation of the exact same information that is twisted in various directions. And the result oftentimes is don't speak anymore. You can't talk about that. This is a space or an environment where that's off limits. We don't want to hear about Jesus. We don't want to know about the gospel. It's offensive. It all started way back here. They commanded them, commanded them to stop speaking in the name of Jesus or teaching at all. And so we're going to see this response by Peter and John. Look at verses 19 through 22. But Peter and John, and I love that Luke includes John in here, and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. Talk about a reverse indictment. <laughs> you want us to obey you instead of God? Is, is that actually what you're saying? Is that what you want of us? Religious leaders, servants of God, shepherds of Israel. For we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. And when they had threatened them further, when the religious leaders had already told them to stop speaking, commanded them to stop speaking, and then it says, apparently they had threatened them even more, they let them go, finding no basis on which they might punish them, on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. (laughs) So I love that the apostles here reveal, we can't stop speaking. You, you, there's no way we can stop 
preaching and teaching about what God has done through Jesus Christ and what he's doing in and through us. The text has said, our fabric over Acts, that thousands are coming to Christ Jesus, that God was adding to their numbers daily as a result of the miracles that were being witnessed and the preaching and the teaching, that God continued to validate the message of the gospel and it resulted in people being saved. And so Peter and John say, there's no way we can stop preaching and teaching what we have seen and what we have heard. We saw the resurrected Jesus. He spent time with us. We ate fish with him. He came through doors and walls, and we saw him ascend back to the Father. You expect us to stop teaching and preaching about this? We can't. We can't. And not the least of which, of course, is because they're being empowered and emboldened by the Holy Spirit. And I love that in verses 21 and 22 here, it says that they had threatened them, but they couldn't punish them because they couldn't find any basis on which they could punish them and on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what happened. So the people who witnessed this are glorifying God, recognizing the miraculous nature of this and understanding the truth. And now these religious leaders are in a position where it's like, what are we going to do? They're glorifying God. Look at the dilemma that they have. And isn't it interesting that at one time, the religious leaders used the crowds to their advantage? You might remember that Mark told us, and maybe the other synoptic gospels told us, that in the Roman forum, when Pilate was presenting Jesus or Barabbas, that the religious leaders, the text tells us the religious leaders went among the people, stirred them up to pick Barabbas. They actually instigated sort of a popular opinion and chant in selection for Barabbas. And here we see that the crowds, and the opinion of the crowds and the majority is working against the religious leaders. The, the, the people whom they stirred up and used for their advantage at one time is now working against them. I love that. And then Luke tells us that this guy was 40 years old. And you know, it's kind of one of those asides. We say, Luke, why did you just insert that right there? Why did you take your literary license and just kind of say, oh, um, for the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Well, you know, that establishes an additional validity to what had happened. It wasn't like this guy was temporarily lame and couldn't walk and over time was able to be restored and fixed. He's been lame from birth. And he was 40 years old when this thing happens. 40 years of being lame. This miracle is undeniable. It can't be shrugged off or explained by some other message or some other means. Oh, you know, he, uh, his leg was sore and it got better. It is undeniable. And everybody knows it. So our second truth, principle, takeaway. When we speak the truth, they'll tell us to stop and likely threaten or punish us. When we speak the truth, they're going to tell us to stop. And they may even threaten or punish us. You know, we saw already that when we speak the truth, we might get in trouble for it. And then when they bring us into their chambers and their quarters, and they have a sit down with us, and they want to slap our wrists for sharing Jesus, or just speaking truth in general, they're going to tell us and command us to stop. 
And they might even punish us for it. But Peter and John said, how can we stop? And friends, the truth should be, the same should be true for us. How can we stop? How can we not share about this great thing that has happened in our hearts? This reality that Jesus Christ has come to save the lost so that we might spend eternity with our Creator. Why would we not share that with others when given the opportunity? Jesus told us it's going to be an opportunity to share our testimony. So our third section is going to be the release. And what's going to happen is that this release is going to spark even greater confidence in speaking about Jesus. Verses 23 to 31. Verse 23 says, And when they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, in other words, when their companions, the other disciples had heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is thou who did make the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So we're going to see sort of two parts to this prayer. It says that they were all of one accord, and they began to pray, O Lord. And what they're doing is they are quoting Psalm 146.6. O Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea. They begin by acknowledging God and who he is. Does this sound like a familiar pattern? That you've heard before? Did Jesus not instruct us that when we pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name? You know, oftentimes the model that Jesus has given starts with just recognizing who God is, acknowledging who he is, the creator of the universe. It's a great practice sometimes to get into praying the attributes of God. Not in some, uh, you know, um, seance type of mantra, but just simply reminding our hearts who God is. And they begin by doing the same as they lift their voices with one accord. Remember Luke telling us previously, that when they were in the upper room, they were all of one accord, one heart, and one mind. They've heard this testimony from Peter and John. They've learned what, what happened in the court. They heard how they were commanded to stop speaking. And the very first thing they do is they lift their voices to God. They're hearing about basically troubled times, a commandment to stop speaking, And the first thing they do when they're all gathered together and they hear what happened in that courtroom is to praise God. And they begin by praying Psalm 146. And they add to it. They begin quoting Psalm 2. That highlights that worldly authority standing against God is futile. Verse 4 of Psalm 2 says that God sits in the heavens and basically laughs at the futile thinking of men raging against him. Look at verse 25. David penned this. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand 
and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. <laughs> Romans 8.31 says, If God is for us, who can be against us? And Psalm 2.2 specifically says that these rulers stand against God's anointed. The NET refers to the anointed as the anointed king. Um, I think the contemporary English translation says something like God's chosen king. And so these apostles, when they're gathered, are praying Psalm 146 and they're praying Psalm 2, revealing how even the worldly authority that attempts to stand against God is futile. It's ridiculous, and God laughs at it. And in verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom you did appoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Verse 28, To do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. How does the Lord's Prayer continue? Who art in heaven, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Isn't this what these disciples are praying right here? There were people gathered together, rulers, who were against your Holy Spirit, against your servant Jesus, against you, God, They named some of them, some of these parties. But you did whatever your hand predestined. You allowed them to be used by you that your will in heaven might be done on earth. Huh. Interesting. The apostles are elaborating here on what it looks like to stand against the Lord's anointed. If Psalm 2 says that they stood against God's anointed one, God's anointed king, this is what it looks like. Herod stood against Jesus. Pilate stood against Jesus. The Gentiles stood against Jesus. And the peoples of Israel stood against Jesus. And so what I think is an important point for us this morning is that when anybody is standing against us, who are they ultimately standing against? Jesus. When the rulers of the world, and the kings and the authorities, and the religious leaders, and whomever today come against you and I, ultimately they're coming against God's chosen one, God's anointed one, God's servant, Jesus. That's what was happening in this day. Those apostles knew it. That's what happens today to you and I. And it's no surprise to God, as they have said. The second half of their prayer, verses 29 through 30. And now, Lord, we have, first Lord, we we recognize who you are. We understand that your anointed sits high on the throne. We understand that it's futile when the world's authorities come against you, Lord. But now here's our petition. How's that daily prayer go? Give us our daily bread. Here's what we need, God. Verses 29 and 30. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that thy bondservants, us, may speak your words with all confidence while you do extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders and 
take place that take place through the name of the holy servant Jesus. Notice that their prayer reveals that they understand that their speech, their words, the requirement, the assignment for them to speak the gospel and share the good news is inextricable from the miracles and the signs and wonders that God is going to do through them. You know, Peter and John and these disciples are praying, Lord, as you do these things through our hands, give us the boldness and the confidence to speak accordingly. We know, we recognize that you're doing these things through us to demonstrate the authority and the validity of the gospel. It validates the gospel. But we also understand that what needs to accompany the miracles you're doing through us at our own hands is speech and explanation. Lord, please give us the confidence to do that. As you're going to continue doing this, give us boldness. Help us. Strengthen us. Give us the confidence to speak your word while you heal and perform signs of wonders in Jesus' name. You're going to be doing this, God. Just help us. (laughs) The release by the religious leaders leads to immediate prayer and a prayer petitioning God for boldness and confidence to speak. The command when they left the court was do not speak about this guy Jesus anymore. And their prayer is, Lord, give us the boldness to speak about this guy Jesus forevermore. And then lastly in verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. We see an answer to their prayer immediately, and it's twofold. It is accompanied with a supernatural filling of the Holy Spirit, that the place was shaken, and that the other result was that they spoke with boldness. The very thing that they asked for, give us the confidence and boldness to continue speaking your word in the name of Jesus, and as soon as they finish their prayer, maybe even while they're finishing their prayer, the Lord answers twofold. And so our third truth this morning is that when we're told to stop speaking the truth, we pray for boldness and we keep on speaking the truth. When we're told to stop speaking the truth, we should pray for boldness and keep speaking the truth. So when we speak we're likely to get in trouble for it. When we speak, they're likely to stop us and threaten us and punish us. And when we're told to stop speaking, we should pray for boldness and keep speaking the truth. These were average men and lay people, just like all of us, except maybe Michael. He's got the credentials. But you know, he and I have had lots of discussions about this very principle. I wish, I wish I had his experience and I wish I had the letters after my name that he has and I wish that I was more eloquent and could do what he does with the word of God. But God has said here, it's all right because he empowers all of us. And if he is our focus, 
then this comes naturally through the work of the Holy Spirit. That each one of us is called to the exact same assignment that Peter and John and all the other apostles and disciples were. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Michael referenced that last week. The command is the make by teaching and preaching the gospel and baptizing them. That applies to every single one of us. And so until God has uniquely released you from that assignment, you are commanded and God expects that you will be sharing and teaching and preaching as he gives you utterance and as he empowers you through his Holy Spirit. Just like these guys. And so when you're told to stop, trust that God will give you the words. When you're threatened with punishment, just continue to pray for boldness that you might be empowered to continue teaching and let God take care of the rest. Amen.